Yes, today is the beginning of our Exodus series, so I would like you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7. Uh, we'll kind of do a uh, circuitous route to the beginning of Exodus this morning, but uh, just to give you a notion of uh, what, what things are going to look like as we move forward in this, in this series, we will be in the book of Exodus beginning today uh, through the remainder of this year up to the first Sunday in Advent. And so we'll be spending some time in this book. There's much that is here that is glorious for us to see. And so uh, it will be a beneficial time for us, I am sure. Uh, it's best to see Exodus as part of the story that started in Genesis. It's really just a chapter in the Pentateuch, right? Those first five books, it's just another chapter. It's another piece of the story that Moses is telling. So Moses, of course, is the primary author of all of these books, these five books. Uh, he writes in order to encourage the people of God, Israel, that's now a great and mighty nation. They have grown into this great people. Uh, he's preparing them to go into the land and claim the land through conquest, the land of Canaan. The land, of course, that was promised to them uh, through Abraham, right? And so... He's preparing them for that and, and trying to explain to them who he is, who God is, who they are in relationship to God, and what his purpose and plans for them are. And so in order to establish this notion of what God is calling them to, uh, he gives to us the idea of the plan and purpose of God for his people. And particularly we see that in Exodus 19 and verses 4 through 6, where he declares there his purpose for his people. Why is he saving them? Why is he bringing them into the land? What is his purpose for them? And it says there that they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, his treasured possessions, possession in whose midst he will dwell. And the, order, and the reason that he dwells in their midst is so that the nations would hear through their witness of the glory of Christ, so they would proclaim and reflect the glory of God to the nations. In order to get into Exodus, we need a summary of Genesis, because it just leads right into, into uh, the book of Exodus, and so we need to understand a little bit about what is happening as we enter the book. It's kind of fortuitous, it was not planned, but the Sunday school class downstairs, the adult Sunday school class, is right at the end of Genesis. They probably have one more lesson in Genesis, and then they will complete that book. And so the timing is perfect. Uh, the Lord does these kinds of things, and we will move straight into the book of Exodus. We find a good summary of the book of Genesis here in Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's speech before the council, before the rulers, the scribes, the elders, and the high priest. He is brought into their presence because he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and so he has to give an account for himself. And so he does so. So I'd like for you to follow along as I read in Acts chapter 7. And I'll read the first 16 verses. And this will give us a really good summary of the book of Genesis. Up to the point of where we will embark on the Exodus. And so the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? And Stephen said, so he begins his speech, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran 
And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though at the time he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to the brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they, carried, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now I want you to go ahead and turn to Exodus. Go back to Exodus chapter 1, and we'll look at those first seven verses then. So Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, and then Moses begins Exodus, continuing the story, but we realize that he's picking up the story some 400 years later. So follow along now in Exodus chapter 1, looking at those first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Would you pray with me? Father, we come asking for your grace to us. Lord, we come to you because we want to hear your word. We come to you because we need to hear your word. Your word to us is as the bread of life to our souls, and we pray that you would speak. And so, Father, wherever we are, whatever we are going through, whatever our situation, our circumstance, I pray that you will capture our hearts, our attentions, by your spirit, would you draw us into your presence? Would you 
would you speak to us? Lord, through the preaching of your word, would it be your voice that we hear? Tell us the things we need to know. We pray your grace upon us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you might have noticed in the reading, uh, one, of the, one of the differences in the, in the stories there, the way that it is told, is that uh, Stephen said there were 75 souls, and here we see there are 70. One of the things that Stephen is doing is he is using the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek, is the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament. And in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 5, it says 75 in the Septuagint. Whereas in the Hebrew text, it says 70. And so it may have been a scribal uh, thing to, to add perhaps Joseph and his sons and perhaps his, the sons of his sons. His sons may have had sons by that time, uh, just counting for all of the folks that belong to Jacob as they are there in the land. So I just wanted to point that out to you. Uh, but we are here asking the question, what is Moses doing in the book of Exodus? Why did he write this book and what does he intend to do? We're also going to look at why that should matter to you, why it should matter to me. What difference does it make to us? We're going to look a little bit about how Exodus unfolds. We'll look at how Moses organized it. And then we'll look specifically at this text and we'll take away, we'll, we'll do a couple of takeaways from what we see. So first, let's think together about what Moses is doing in this book. One of the primary things that he is doing in this book, but he does it through the Pentateuch, is he helps the people understand who God is. God, through Moses, is revealing himself to the people of God so that they will know Him. They will know that He's not only the one that created them, which we see in the early account of Genesis, but He is also the one who redeems them, beginning with their forefather, right? Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. But then the specific way that He redeems here in the book of Exodus. And so He writes so that they will know God. He also writes so that they will know themselves, that they will understand who they are, how God forms them. He forms them through redeeming them in order to be His people. They are a people who belong to Him. And so He is also wanting to communicate to them their own identity so that they will know who they are. And then He also writes this book in order to reveal God's purposes and plans so that they will know God's plan and purpose for them. And that purpose and plan is that he would dwell in their midst in order to be their God and they would be His people. And in so doing, they would bear witness to and bless the nations. All of this in fulfillment of what God told Abraham, what He had promised Abraham. And so some of, some of those promises are yet to be fulfilled. And He wants them to know how God is planning to fulfill those. So why should this matter to us? Their God is your God, right? Their God is your God. And you will know Him better as He makes Himself known in this book. It's one of the reasons it matters to us. And you ought to realize as well that their story is your story. We spent time last summer talking about our story and how our story is caught up in a big story that God is writing that God is conducting. And so their story is your story. Did you know the song 
Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Right? That's an important truth. That is a critical truth. The reality is the God of Abraham is our God. We belong to Abraham. We belong to this family. Their story is our story. Their identity is our identity. For we too are redeemed by the Lord. So Exodus sets for us the pattern for and of redemption. And we're going to see that it picks up some of the things, some of those ectypes. If you were in Sunday school, you would know what an ectype is. It's, it's those things that point to that which comes later. And so we see here a pattern that will come later, but we also see before this some of those patterns already developing. So there are things that we will see in Genesis that are made clear here in Exodus, and there are things moving forward in Scripture and in our own lives that we will understand the pattern for and of redemption. It teaches us how God saves. How does God save His people? He saves them from something, typically from slavery, and He brings them to Himself. So He saves them from something, saves them to something. It's an important pattern that is established in this book. And there'll be echoes of this pattern throughout the halls of Scripture, throughout the halls of history, and I dare say throughout the halls of your own life. So it's an important story for us. You and I will understand more deeply and more fully the links that our Lord goes to in order to redeem us and bring us to Himself by our study in Exodus. And third... The purpose and plan of God for them is also God's purpose and plan for us. No mystery there. It is to proclaim and reflect His glory. I want you to take a, a look in the New Testament in uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and listen to this. I mean, it's it's... Well, we didn't read uh, Exodus 19, but this is quoting Exodus 19, where Peter is saying to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's exactly what he told Israel that they were. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light purpose that God had for Israel is the purpose that he has for us. So it's important for us to see that. The God we see in Exodus is our God. The people we see in Exodus are our people. Their story of redemption is also our story of redemption. And the plan and purpose of God's redeeming these people is also his plan and purpose for redeeming us. That's why it should matter to us. Well, let's do a, a brief word about how uh, the book of Exodus is organized. Uh, in the first uh, 15 chapters, so from chapter 1 to chapter 15, they are in Egypt, and God powerfully and mercifully redeems His people through plagues, Passover, and through water. So that's Exodus 1 through 15. 
In Exodus 15 through 19, they are on the way to Sinai through the wilderness, and God wisely prepares his people to meet him at Sinai, and he prepares them through testing and through trial. In the wilderness, testing, wilderness, these themes ought to be ringing bells in your head. I've heard of wilderness temptations before. There's an important reason that you've heard of that before. In chapter 20 through 24, they are at Sinai. God graciously establishes how Israel must live in order to dwell with him. There he gives his law, the law of his covenant. And then in chapters 25 through 31, still at Sinai, God graciously provides for how he, the holy God, can dwell in the midst of his sinful, unholy people. So he gives instructions for the tabernacle and for the priesthood. In chapters 32 through 34, what do we have there? The golden calf incident. God wisely illustrates in that incident why law and tabernacle and priesthood are absolutely necessary for him to dwell in their midst. And then finally, in verses or chapters 35 through 40, still at Sinai, God dwells in and inhabits the tabernacle that the people have constructed. And so that's a good outline for the book of Exodus, just to give you an idea, sort of orientation uh, of the book and why it's important, how these things connect together. Now I'd like for you to turn your attention to these first seven verses here in Exodus 1 through, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 5 kind of remind us where we've been, right, in the book of Genesis. It's a summary. It, it is, is an explanation as to why uh, we are in Egypt. If, if we are the original audience, why are we in Egypt? And so it's a summary of that. And then verses 6 and 7 brings us up to the present, that is, up to the present of, of the, uh, the Israelites. Uh, and so Moses' purpose in these introductory verses is to connect the events that he is about to speak about, is about to disclose, to connect those with Genesis. Again, these events occur some 400 years after much of what is recorded in Genesis. But this continuity is vital to Moses' purposes. Because such historical continuity, it not only reminds us of who we are, where we come from, but it helps put context to where we are right now. And it also provides a bit of direction and hope for where we are going to be going in the future. That was true of Israel, it's true of us. So Moses connects to Genesis in three primary ways here in this passage. Now, lost in translation is the, is the reality that the book of Exodus actually begins with the word and. It begins with the word and in the Hebrew, as does Leviticus and Numbers. And so it's a continuation. It's to be seen that way. And so that's one way in which Moses is connecting what is happening in Exodus to what has happened and transpired in Genesis. The summary that we find here of how they get into Egypt, the first six words of verse 1 are an almost exact repetition of Genesis chapter 46 and verse 8. So he's bringing text from Genesis right here that we would see them. 
the listing of Jacob's uh, sons here are in the same order that we find in Genesis 35, verses 25 through 26. It's not chronological. It's not the order. It's not their birth order, but it's the order of the mothers, right? And so he lists Leah's sons first, then Rachel's sons, then Rachel's handmaid, and then Leah's handmaid. Their two sons each. And then I want you to note the language, the third way in which he ties this to Genesis. Look at the language in verse 7. This language of the people being fruitful and they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. Literally, the land swarmed with them is the actual meaning of the word there. This language is intended to prompt in our own minds and our own understanding, though certainly in the understanding of the Israelites, uh, two important themes that we find in the account of Genesis. There's a connection here to the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam. Chapter 1 and verse 28. He gives that same cultural mandate to Noah. After the flood wipes out humanity, Noah comes off the boat and in 9-1, he gives him the same cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. So we see here a repeat, don't we? We see here a repetition of that which had been, had been stated earlier. So the children of Israel that has now become into this great nation, we see here, it's implicitly implied here, but we see here that they are becoming another Adam. They are becoming another Noah who was another Adam. And, and this is made even more explicit in chapter 4, verses 20, I think it's 23 and 24, where Moses goes to Pharaoh and calls Israel God's firstborn son. And so we see here that he's setting up the idea that the nation Israel, not just an individual, not just a clan, but the nation now are to be considered the son of God. A new Adam. We have here maybe a recreation. He is beginning again with a new people, as it were. This is solidified by the other connection that Moses intends to make when he uses this language in verse 7, and that is to connect these people to the promises, the covenant promises that were made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In Genesis 13, 16, God told Moses, or I'm sorry, God told Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In chapter 15 and verse 5, they would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. In chapter 17, verses 2 and 5, he says, I will multiply you greatly. You will be exceedingly fruitful. In chapter 22 and verse 17, after he uh, went to go sacrifice Isaac, uh, God tells him there, I will bless you and multiply your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In chapter 26, verses 4 and 24, he restates this promise to Isaac, I will bless you and multiply your offspring again as many as the stars of heaven. And then in 35, 11, to Jacob, he tells him, commands him, be fruitful and multiply 
a nation and company of nations will come from you. This language is intentional here in Exodus chapter 1 because it connects these people to the promises that were given to their father, Abraham, their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because here we see the fulfillment of this promise. God is obviously blessing them, and they have become fruitful, and they have multiplied, they have increased, they have filled the land. All that language is creation and covenant language. And so verses 6 and 7 bring us to the current situation. They are in Egypt. We see the story of the people of God transitioning from the story of an individual, in Genesis, an individual, Abraham, to a family, to a clan. It's a story about Jacob and his children. Here we have the story of them now as a nation. So God is fulfilling His covenant promises. And even His cultural mandate that was given to Adam and restated to Noah is being fulfilled. So as we begin Exodus, knowing Genesis, we're prompted then to ask a couple of questions. Well, what about the promises of land that God gave to Abraham? How will that be fulfilled? It's been 400 years since these promises were given. Why are we here in Egypt? Why are we still in Egypt? And as we will see next week, why are we suffering in Egypt? What is God doing? In fact, they are probably asking, where is God? There's three takeaways. that I'd, Or two takeaways. I'd like for you. I took, I took one of the takeaways away. <laughs> two takeaways as we begin to answer these questions. And they will help us consider what God is doing in our own lives. The first thing to realize is, and we will learn this more as we go through the book of Exodus, but this realization that it's 400 years later, God's timing is His own, and it is often different than ours. Now you know that, but I want, I want you to, to kind of put the 400 years into perspective here. Three years from now, we will celebrate 250 years since we declared our independence from England as a nation. Now, if you do the math, that's only a little over half the number of years that Israel was in Egypt before they've heard anything from God. It's almost like the 400 years between the Old and New Testament. Even. The 400th anniversary of our independence from England is 150 years from now. That's still at least six generations from now. Maybe my great, great, great grandchildren might be alive if I have grandchildren. I don't yet, but one can host. Um, if I have grandchildren, maybe great, 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 maybe one of those will be alive to see the 400th anniversary. But who knows, 150 years from now, what even that's going to look like. I mean, so just imagine yourself in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, you're not alive that whole time. You're maybe one of the middle generations. Now there's a world tradition. So the promises of God are recounted. 
We'll see evidence of that even in chapter 1 next week. But put this in perspective. God's timing is not our time. When are these promises going to be fulfilled? Even Abraham, right? He never saw. He never saw the land. As Stephen said, he never even he never even had a foot's length of the land. And so this is perspective. But there are times in which we do ask, where has God been? And what is God doing? Well, the other thing I want you to see, the second takeaway, is that typically, we certainly see it here, but typically, not typically, always probably, God is doing more than can be readily seen. He's always doing more than can be readily seen. Moses has to some degree already answered the 400-year question. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, when God gives cuts the covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham there, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So why 400 years? Why this length of time? We can deduce some things. One, so that Israel will become a great nation. This gives them plenty of time in the fruitful land of Egypt to produce and reproduce and to grow from 70 to 75 to this great multitude, which we see at the beginning of the book of Numbers, which is about two years after they leave Egypt. They're still at Sinai. They're at about 630,000 men, 20 years old and older. Great nation. By the way, just a little plug here, and I always have to say this at least once in churches that I'm in. Um, do you note how God grows His kingdom, typically? Through families. So if you are a, a woman of childbearing age and, and you are physically capable, keep having children. That's the way in which God grows His kingdom. That's a good thing. That's a primary means by which His people are discipled and become His people. It's a primary way. It's not the only way. We will gloriously see God will add he will graft in the nations. But let's not forget, there is a primary means by which he grows his people. He's typically doing, always doing, more than meets the eye. So they're becoming a great nation. It takes time. So that's one thing that is happening. But God is also at this time preparing Pharaoh. There is a Pharaoh, a king, that will arise that doesn't know Joseph. This is critical when you think about God's purposes and His plans. There's particular timing to His purposes and plans. There needs to be a particular Pharaoh and there needs to be a particular Egypt to come to the play of what God will do next. So God is preparing that for what He is about to do in their midst. It is critical and key to what He is going to do. 
He doesn't go away for 400 years and then realize, oh, all my people, I forgot all about them. Now they're crying out to me. I, oh, I finally hear them. I'm going to come to the rescue. No, no, no. It's all part of his purpose and it's all part of his plan. And it's critical because what he is about to do can only be done at this particular time, to this particular Pharaoh, to this particular Egypt. So that the nations, particular nations, will see at that particular time. God's particular about these kinds of things. One of the things that we also learn in Genesis uh, 15 is that in verse 16 there, so what is God doing? One of the things that, he, that God tells Abraham there in Genesis 15 verse 16 is that Abraham's offspring will only return to the land when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete meaning that his judgment upon the Canaanites through the conquest of Canaan by his people awaits the maturity of the iniquity of the Canaanites, which will take this time. God is always doing things that we do not see. His timing is beyond our wisdom, and he is always doing more than can be determined by us. Mark Deaver says it this way, and this is a, a great way to think about things. Circumstances do not determine God's plans. Rather, God's plans determine circumstances. What would it mean in your life if you thought that was true? If you lived as though that were the reality? That circumstances don't affect or determine God's plans, but God's plans affect circumstances. Why am I in Egypt as a slave? What are you going through? What is your why question? It's important to realize that that is within the purposes and the plans of God. It's a hard thing to know. It's a hard thing to realize, but it is a true thing. And when we believe it's true, when we begin to understand, that is such a help to us. A tremendous help to us. It's an important truth. So the next time that you and I imagine to be that God is slow to act, or the next time that we imagine that He is doing nothing at all, let us remember and take to heart that God's timing is different than ours. Way different than ours. And he is always doing more than can be readily seen. So Exodus is an epic story. It's an epic hero story, actually. It's about Moses and Israel in this epic struggle with one of the most powerful sovereigns and one of the most powerful nations in history. But unlike our typical epic stories, Moses nor Israel is the hero. The actual protagonist in this story is not human. But rather this is a story about God. It is God who redeems. And it is to himself that he brings the people that he redeems. He is the great savior. He is the great sovereign. But he is a sovereign who desires to be near his people. And so he provides a way for his people to be near to him. But again, I had spoken to you about models. 
This is only a pattern. It's only a model. It points to an ultimate way in which God redeems and brings his people near to himself. As we learn of Moses, we will learn of Jesus. As we learn of the call to Israel, we will learn of the call to Jesus. When we learn of the the, um, redemption of Israel, we will learn of our redemption through Christ. As we see the exodus of Israel, Israel going out, we will realize that Jesus as well goes through an exodus. Exodus means departure. Jesus' death is described in Luke chapter 9 as a departure, as an exodus. But he is raised and ascended to the Father. And there he shows how bringing Israel to himself at Sinai and in the land of Canaan is but a beginning of how God will bring all of his people home to himself. We will see much of Jesus as we go through the book of Exodus. Didn't even mention Passover. Didn't even mention the Red Sea. So many things that we will see concerning Jesus and the nature of his work on our behalf. Next week, we will do the rest of chapter 1. I would ask you to read it. I would ask you to read more in Exodus. It takes about two, two and a half hours to read the whole book. You can do it. You should do it. It would be good for you to kind of see it all together. So give that a try. Do that. If you can't do that, at least do the the remaining verses in chapter 1. Because as we read it, we will learn about the Lord. We will learn about His way of redeeming and saving His people. And you will begin to see and grow in knowing the person and work of Jesus in our own redemption and in the the calling that God gives to we, His people. Would you pray with me? Father, we come in thanking you for the ways in which you provide for us uh, so much information in your word, so much information about yourself. God, you reveal yourself. You are a God who is pleased to make yourself known. And what we see here in this book is you are a God who wants to be near to your people. Your intention is to create a people that you would live in their midst that we would have fellowship and communion with you. And we see that you are making that happen. And we see how you make that happen as we see the patterns of redemption and relationship that are established here in this book. We thank you for these glorious things that you show us and how they ultimately point us to your Son, our Savior. And so we would ask you to exalt the Lord Jesus in our midst as we go through this study. We pray your grace upon us that we would know you better, that we would understand more deeply your call upon our lives. We pray your grace to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.